And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show this morning. Of course, it is uh, Tuesday as we uh, continue to roll in this week. More earnings out today. Of course, uh, market struggled a little bit yesterday. But uh, again, we'll kind of get into that this morning, kind of what to expect. You know, it is interesting, though, that, you know, as we move into the month of February, which tends to be a weaker month. We talked a little bit about that yesterday. It's also part of the presidential election cycle as well, which typically kind of this time of year, February, March, uh, markets tend to kind of be a little bit sloppy um, as things are starting to gear up. And then of course, over the next couple of months, we'll have you know typically seasonally in advance into early summer, a bit of weakness going into October prior to the election. Everybody's not quite sure uh, you know who's going to get elected. And then of course, post-election markets tend to do a lot better because you kind of know what the policies are. Interestingly enough, uh, markets this year really starting to position in theory, right, this is kind of some of the, the market theory right now, is that markets are beginning to position for a potential Republican win in November. And that's lower taxes, less regulations, those type of things, which tend to bode well for markets uh, in that type of environment. So again, it's kind of interesting as we see this, markets are now trying to latch on to the next new Thing, right? So uh, the federal for the last several months, it's been, oh, the Fed's going to cut rates. Oh, the Fed's going to cut rates. And now that Jerome Powell is basically kind of implementing that he's saying or inclinating that he's not going to cut rates in March, maybe not even in May, uh, because economic growth tends to be is, is still strong right now. We just saw the employment numbers. GDP is expected to be fairly strong for the first quarter. So again, no real reason to cut rates uh, when you have that type of economic data because it tends to be a little bit inflationary. So the markets are having to try to shift their thesis right to the next catalyst for the market. So, well, if the Fed's not going to cut rates, I need something to kind of latch onto to justify overpaying for valuations. And that is potentially now a Republican win in November, which would lead to less regulation, more rate cuts, more monetary support, those type of things. So again, that's now starting to become, uh, you know, kind of the early kind of change of narrative. And again, narratives are important, right? Because narratives are what support these ideas that we have in the markets. Oh, sure. Yeah. A AI is going to change the world. Okay, great. Uh, that's a narrative. You know, we saw that same narrative with the dot-com bubble, right? And so th these are narratives, and the market needs a narrative, and particularly when markets are trading at, you know, high valuations, 20, 25, 30 times trailing earnings, you've got to have a narrative to support why you're going to be able to justify that in the future. So in other words, if I, if I overpay for, you know, think, think about it this way. You go to an auto dealership, and... There's a car there you want to buy. It normally sells for $35,000. And the auto dealer says, hey, you know what? We'll sell you that car, but it's $60,000. Well, you're going, well, it's only worth thirty. dollars Yeah, but you know, there's a lot of demand for this car. Everybody's going to want this car in the future. So we're going to you know, pay $60,000. We want you to pay $60,000 for it. So you've got to justify to yourself, why am I going to overpay? And the reason you would overpay for that automobile 
is the thesis would be, well, in the future, everybody's going to want this car. It's a, it's a specific limited edition type car, whatever it is. But you've got to have a narrative to justify overpaying for that car under the assumption that eventually the car will be worth that in the future. That's the risk to narratives because a lot of time these narratives don't actually mature and this is why investors get themselves into trouble. So right now what we're seeing is, is the shift of narrative from easier monetary accommodation to potentially a Republican win in November, which would be better for stocks and markets. In fact, historically speaking, a Republican president with a Republican Congress and House or even a Republican president with a split House and, and Senate uh, actually has some of the better returns over time versus a purely Democratic. So again, that's kind of the, the thesis that markets are starting to play off of. Uh, again, just, you know, these are things that, you know, you need to be aware of because this is how markets operate. And again, these things may not work out. <laughs> so these narratives can go away very quickly and that leads to losses in markets. So just be aware of narratives and reality and, and focus ultimately on fundamentals because that's ultimately, at the end of the day, it, it, when it's all said and done, it's only fundamentals that matter, right? What is the company actually earning? Are they actually growing revenues? That's what's going to be important. Now, interestingly enough, talking about, about <laughs> narratives, um, you know, one of the big problems for Apple has been growing revenue. They haven't had a new piece of technology out in a long time. Well, they've come out now with the new Vision Pro. It's been out for three days now, which are these goggles that you wear. And basically, you can watch television, operate your phone, you know, do, do all your work while you're wearing these goggles. And already, a guy's been arrested driving his Tesla while wearing the goggles. <laughs> Uh, they've been spotted with people walking around the mall uh, with these goggles on and in restaurants while they're eating have their vision on. So no longer do you go to a restaurant and then see the family with the iPad and their kids sitting there. No, they're just wearing goggles now. So <laughs> looks like a pair of ski goggles. <laughs> you know where this winds up eventually. There's, there's, <laughs> there's nothing good coming out of this down the road <laughs> for society. Anyway, all right, let's talk a little bit about what you need to know before the bell this morning. So markets did sell off just a little bit yesterday. Um, again, we've had a very strong run. Uh, importantly enough, though, and this is kind of the conversation we'll have today, is that we are just sitting here knocking on the door of 5,000 on the S&P. I mean, we are just, uh, just a small uh, little bit away from reaching 5,000, and we're gonna do that. Um, we're gonna get to 5,000 on the S&P probably before this rally is over, simply because there's a gravitational pull. These big round psychological numbers are like a gravitational pull. It's like markets just kind of want to get there. And then once they're there, they can sell off a little bit. So it's, 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 it's where we are right now. There's a lot of psychology, a lot of bullish momentum. Um, but markets did pull back just a tad yesterday. Again, we're still on a buy signal. So again, nothing going, no, nothing wrong here whatsoever. And I would expect probably by the end of this week that we may see that, that attempt, if not this week, next week, um, you know, see this attempt to try to make it to 5,000 before we may see a bit bigger correction in the markets. Now, that's not always the case, but again, historically, when you get close to these round numbers, the market tries to want to get there. Um, outside of that, the other kind of uh, news moving the, moving the markets over the last day or so have been uh, yields. And, you know, we've talked about uh, fixed income here before. And of course, we had a very, very sharp rally in yields uh, on expectations of rate cuts. And now that the Fed's having to walk that back, we've kind of reversed 
that run up in yields. That's not surprising at all. Markets are continuing to kind of form a bottom here. We're still on a buy signal. Uh, getting back, we got very overbought. So again, this sell, that, that run up in yields, uh, or I should say run down in yields, run up in bond prices, um, got the market very, very overbought short term. So we've worked off a lot of that overbought condition. And we're sitting here right on, right near support on the 10-year treasury at this, at this point. And if I can get my screen to work here, it'll help. But we have some really good support here that the market is trying to hold on to. Uh, but again, right below that, there's also support right at the 100-day moving average. So you've got, a, you've got a good bit of support here for the market. You're still running a nice rising trend line at, at this juncture as well. And again, the market, you know, bonds themselves are over, oversold enough that there's room for an upside rally. But again, what you probably need here is, is a little bit more data to come in, something to help spur yields back into, into kind of a positive mode. But absolutely nothing going wrong with bonds here. Uh, we started this nice bullish rally back last year that's still firmly intact at this point and nothing really to worry about, particularly as inflation and economic growth kind of continues to slow down here a bit. Um, that should continue to feed in to the yield structure. That's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about S&P 5000. What does that mean for the markets and what happens next? Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Before we get into our conversation this morning, I just thought it was funny that uh, New York has decided to start, uh, they allocated $53 million to start giving illegal immigrants in the city $1,000 a month um, on a basically an Amex type debit card. And they can, and then they say, we well, have to promise to only use it for food and diapers, but there's no restrictions on it. They also get free access to health care. They're also getting free housing. Um, and they get free education. So, you know, what I find interesting about this is we wrote articles about, um, what is this, 2024? So, so basically about four years ago now, right after the pandemic, we wrote a lot of articles about, you know, MMT, which is modern monetary theory. And that modern monetary theory is this idea that, you know, the government can just give you stuff and then there's no consequence for that because it's just debt. And the theory behind MMT is, is that the government's debt is your asset, right? And, and that's basic accounting. If somebody's got a debit, somebody's got a credit. I mean, that's, that's, that's basic accounting, but it doesn't really work that way in real life because that debt has to be paid at some point. But what I find, what I find humorous about all of this, it's not humorous, it's actually sad, but um, is that all the stuff that people fought for I want free health care. I want free education. I want, you know, I want uh, UBTs. I want, you know, kind of a universal basic income. They got it, but it was all given to the illegal immigrants. And, you know, so this is, you know, this is, we'll, we'll see how this stuff works out. But historically, and this is the point that we continue to make, is that it, it sounds good that the government can just pay for whatever you want. And that's all fine. And if that really worked in real life, then why wouldn't everybody just do this? But this is the problem with socialism. This is the problem with communism. 
etc., is that those type of structures where the government is controlling the production, the means of production and the means of labor, it doesn't work out well for the average person. And the average person, their standard of living declines. It doesn't increase. I mean, it sounds great that if everybody's sharing equally, that everybody would be everybody would be happy, right? Everybody would be living a great life. It just doesn't work that way because it reduces the demand for production, right? You know, why work? If I'm getting free money and I don't have to work, why would I work? And why would I produce? Well, without production, you don't have economic growth. And without economic growth, you can't have economic prosperity. So, you know, that's, that's always the flaws of the system. It sounds great on the surface, but in the end, there's a lot of negatives that come along with it. So, you know, it, it's again, we, but the government continues to do this thing. You know, and it was, it was interesting too, we're debating right now on more, more aid, right? We're gonna give more, more, more money, billions of dollars to Ukraine, but yet there's a billion dollars worth of weapons that we've already sent to Ukraine that are missing. Well, those wound up getting sold on the black market. But see, this is the problem. We just, we kind of give out money. We don't really track it. We don't really know where it goes. And again, we're all doing this in the best of intentions, right? We're, we're saying, hey, you know, this country needs money. They need help. They have this problem going on. We need to give this, give this to them. Fine. I get that. But we have to pay for the debt. So everybody's worried about the debt and how much debt we're ramping up, right? We're over $34 trillion now. But we just have this unbridled spending pattern that we have in government without any real control. So we, we spend this money. We have no idea where it goes. And we just kind of hope it all works out in the end. But, you know, this is the problem. And, and this is why you need budgets. This is why you need, you know, fiscal responsibility in government. And we, have just, we haven't had that in a long time, which is why we're now at $34 trillion in debt and climbing. But the implications of that are going to be continued rates of slower economic growth. Now, yes, in the short term, you're going to get production boost to the economy when you spend a whole lot of money. And this is why we're seeing relatively strong economic growth in the third quarter, fourth quarter of last year, first quarter of this year. Fourth quarter of last year, we spent $2.50 in debt for the, each dollar's worth of economic growth we got. That's not a good trade-off. The problem with that growth is, is that it's non-productive. In other words, it doesn't generate money. So in the future, we've still got to pay that debt. The interest on that debt's got to be paid, and the principal's got to be paid back at some point on that debt. And yes, we can print money to do that. But the the money it was spent on, it was it was theoretically wasted money, right? We didn't build a power plant that's going to generate years worth of, of tax revenue from usage or, or usage fees. We didn't do that. We, we spent money on all kinds of projects and things that we wanted to spend money on that had no real long-lasting impact economically. So once that injection of capital fades, economic growth slows, economic prosperity weakens, but we're still stuck with the debt. So th this, is, this is why there's so much debate over debt, because of the negative side effect of long-term debt on economic prosperity. Again, you know, we've got a whole generation of kids that are growing up, you know, Gen Zs, millennials, complaining about why they can't afford a house. You know, article, the article we have on Friday, what we'll talk about next Monday, is, is about housing. We have a whole generation uh, you know, out there right now that 
they can't afford to buy a house. They can't, uh, you know, they, they complain about how much money they make in a job versus the cost of living. These are all directly the side effects of all that monetary, modern monetary theory that was supposed to be so good for everybody. You asked for it, you got it, and now you don't like the consequence. But these are the lessons that we have to learn so that theoretically we don't do them in the future, and unfortunately, we just don't learn those lessons. Okay, sorry for my, my quick rant. I took a small 180-degree turn. Uh, this stuff just gets me fired up in the morning. So anyway, anyway, uh, look, we'll, we'll, come, we'll, we'll get into our article today. So uh, on today's website, I have a new article out talking about S&P 5000, and, and we'll, we'll pick up on this on the other side of the break because I just spent too much time ranting. Um, <laughs> so, but a couple of things that are, that are going on um, today. You know, so yesterday we saw uh, ISM Services came out. Now, it ticked up out of expansion. Uh, oh, sorry, basically, it was on, kind of on the borderline of contraction. It ticked up into expansion. And again, you know, that's 80% of the economy. So we continue to see economic activity happening at just enough of a rate to keep the economy going. Now, importantly, we wrote an article last year talking about economic cycles. And the case that we made in that article was for the avoidance of a recession because we had already been economic data. So like think about the leading economic indicators, which have been negative now for like 20 months in a row. Um, ISM manufacturing has been negative for a very long time. And, and the point is, is that these indicators have been negative for so long now that just by the very nature of the way that A, the economy works and B, how they're measured, they're going to start to improve. And these are the cycles that we talk about. And so we've been through a very long cycle where companies have worked off inventory, overhangs, uh, people have cut back as much as they can cut back in a lot of cases. And so we're starting to see that kind of that year-over-year measurement of things began to improve because things have kind of bottomed in a lot of cases and they're not getting worse. And so if things kind of bottom and stop getting worse, then the other side of that is as we measure things over time, you know, last month was zero. This month is, is zero. Well, I'm at zero on a, on a month over month basis or a year over year basis. We were this is where exactly where we were a year ago. And if that's the case, then those indicators are improving. Now, it may not seem like the world's getting better out there, and, and in a lot of cases it's not, but these indicators are going to improve, and now we're now seeing that, and the leading economic indicators, as a good example, are turning up. Now, they're not positive yet. They're still in, constriction, uh, in, in restricted territory, but they're turning up, and over the course of this, over the next several months, they are likely to turn positive again, and this is where it's going to be very frustrating for a lot of individuals that are banking on a recession that... How could we go through this very long, a uh, historically long period of, of negative economic indicators and not have a recession? And this, this is going to be, if, if this occurs, I'm not saying it is. There's still a lot of people out there calling for a recession this year, Jeff Gunlock being one of them. And he may be right. But if we go through this cycle and don't have a recession, 
this will be the first time on record for a lot of these indicators, this goes back to the 60s, that they were wrong. Inverted yield curves, never wrong about a recession. There, and, and the reason is, is there's some implications of what's been going on. Again, all this spending that we've been doing, right? The CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, all, a, a lot of that CHIPS Act money hadn't even gotten into the economy yet. It's still coming. And now we're wanting to spend more money on things. And so, you know, when you're, when you're, you look, and I say, look, you, you know, if you have, you know, money that you're shelling out for, you know, feeding people, doing whatever, that's all, imp that all impacts the economy. They're spending that in the economy, right? So that's all boosting economic activity. So again, this is, this is why this may be frustrating. And particularly if you're in the camp that's expecting a recession, it may be frustrating because it just, you know, you can't ever quite get there to where it's like, oh, well, no, we're going to have this recession and we're going to have this big decline in the market. As we've said for a while now, that may not be the case, which is why we have to kind of manage the market for what we have. All right. Economic calendar out today, right? We've got uh, more data coming out. Earnings from Chevron, ExxonMobil, Charter Communications. So we've got some big reports this morning. Um, so again, that's going to be uh, kind of moving markets right now, earnings. All right, quick break. We'll come back. We'll talk about S&P 5000. Right on the cusp of it. What happens after that? Don't go away. Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. So welcome back. All right, so the quest of 5,000 on the S&P, this has been uh, on people's radars really for the last several years. That, you know, every time we get into a bull rally of some sort, you know, somebody throws a kind of a number out there and is like, oh, we're going to get to 4,000, 5,000, whatever the, you know, whatever the next kind of psychological market indicator is. And as you know, you can kind of see in this chart that I put together, you know, going back to 2021, we've, you know, had two attempts here at getting to 5,000. We made it to 47.96 um, at the peak of the market in January of 2022. Fell short there, of course, went through the correction in, in 2022. And now here we are. Now, uh, again, my charts uh, uh, was dated on uh, Sunday. This is Friday's close. Um, you know, 49.58. So we were really close and then sold off a little bit yesterday. And we'll see what the, what the markets kind of do today. But, you know, this, this idea of, you know, trying to get to that 5,000 is this big psychological round number. And if we go back in history... Um, and, and kind of look at these longer trending periods, you know, what's interesting is, is that we're starting to get to these big psychological round numbers on a faster basis. You know, so if you, you know, going back to 1964, it took 8,894 trading days to get to 1,000. 
Now, again, back then you had no act, the Fed was not active. So it took a very, very long time to get to a thousand. Then to go from 1,000 to 2,000, we did that in 4,321 4, trading days, and that was cut to 1,272 trading days. And, and if we reach this market, you know, kind of the next 5,000 by, you know, today or this week, we're going to be somewhere between 1,191 and 1,195 days. So, again, you know, we're just we're, we're shrinking the amount of time that it takes to make these big psychological milestones. And as we get close to these numbers, you know, there's you know, what you'll notice is, is that there's often a correction that occurs right after we reach or soon after we reach that psychological milestone. Like, for instance, when we got to 1,000, the market went up a little bit more and then corrected and actually went back below 1,000 before we made the run up into, you know, the dot com peak. And then the market went nowhere for 17 years. <laughs> so, you know, that's that's the risk. And again, you, you take a look at, you know, every time we've hit these psychological numbers, the markets tend to struggle a bit, you know, following that fact. And, and again, it's just because we get a lot of hype and we get a lot of, of you know, speculative attitude, uh, you know, in the markets. And that's where we are right now. Um, if you take a look at the number of so, so we do a lot of composite indexes, you know, so you have the University of Michigan, Michigan Consumer Confidence, you have the Conference Board Confidence Index, you know, so we make a composite indicator of confidence. Um, you have the retail AA, you know, the American Association of Individual Investors, you have the National Association of Investment Managers on stock sentiment. So we take those and put them together and make composite index, kind of get a, a broad view of what overall sentiment is. And so we look at investor sentiment, retail and institutional, Whenever the bulls outweigh the bears by more than two, two and a half times, which is where we are currently, that tends to be near market peaks. Now, when that ratio gets below 75, that's basically been near market bottoms. And it doesn't mean it's exact, right? It doesn't mean that they're at two and a half today and that's the top. Sometimes it is, but often it tells you that we're getting close to a level of kind of peak exuberance. And that's where we are now. As of Friday, we were over two and a half on Friday. So again, just, you know, a lot of exuberance in this market. And that, that momentum, that exuberance, right, that psychological underpinning is what's driving stock prices higher because there's a fear of missing out. You know, another way to look at it is to take a look at that sentiment index and divide it by the volatility index because, Volatility, the, the, the VIX, the volatility index, is a measure of fear. It, and that's what we call it the fear gauge, right? So it's how many people are buying calls versus puts. And, you know, are, are they betting on a crash? And right now they are not betting on a crash at all. And so when we combine the sentiment and, and, and we take the sentiment ratio and we divide it by the VIX, um, we also get an indicator that puts us very close to what has normally been a market peak. Now, again, not, not going to say that it's going to crash tomorrow, but again, there's a lot of bullish sentiment in the markets right now that are potentially trying to drive you know, this market higher. And again, with that big you know, flashing neon sign up there of 5,000, the markets just have a natural propensity to try to want to get there. Now, after that, as I said, Things have historically become a bit more challenging. You know, um, as we talked about in this weekend's newsletter, if you take a look at in our, in our weekly newsletter that we put out, we have a lot of market data in that report. 
So if you haven't subscribed to our newsletter, go to the website. It's free. Um, just go to realinvestmentadvice.com, click on the link to subscribe to the Bull Bear Report. But um, you know, every week we kind of go through a market update, we kind of talk about some topic, and then we have a lot of market data. Well, one of the gauges that we put out every week is our technical composite gauge, which is a weekly combined composite of several technical indicators, relative strength, those type of things. That indicator is at 96.84 as of Friday. Now, this is a bit slower to move because, again, it's a weekly data. So we only update this once a week, so it uses weekly data. So it moves slower than day-to-day -day volatility. But that gauge is at 96.84. Now, that gauge only goes from 0 to 100. <laughs> so you're, you're in the 96th percentile, 97, of that gauge. And historically, when that gauge has been at such high levels, you get at least a short-term correction. Now, again, you, know, you have to understand what I'm saying. When I'm saying you get a correction, that could be a correction that lasts three days, four days, five days, and just works off the overbought condition. It could be a deeper correction of 5 or 10% like we saw last summer. In fact, going into that correction in June and July, we were over 90 on this gauge back in June and July, which is why we were saying, hey, we're probably going to get a 5 to 10% correction this summer because that, this gauge is very, very elevated. And, and we're now even more elevated than we were back then. So expecting a 3 to a 5% correction at this point should not be off your radar. It should be kind of almost what you're betting on at some point. It also means that markets can just do nothing here for a while. But nonetheless, you know, this is where we are. So again, you know, we go back to talking about this market and this kind of this big round number of 5,000 and, and why we're going to get there. And again, just as we saw yesterday, it's these big top 10 stocks. Eli Lilly was up 6% yesterday. Um, um, NVIDIA was up 4% yesterday. And those, those companies are so large in the index, they make up the top 10 stocks in that index. As people drive money in that index, that's 35% of the index lifting the markets. And that's why market declines have been fairly limited because those stocks continue to outperform on a regular uh, on a relative basis relative to the rest of the index and and we've we've talked about this bifurcation in the markets between the top 10 stocks and everything else and you know if we take a look at that the difference between the S&P equal weight and and the uh, market cap weighting you know there's just a massive difference in performance that has been occurring it's almost two times since January of 22. So, you know, we've talked about this market being driven by those top 10 stocks. And, of course, they're absorbing all these passive inflows. So as everybody's buying ETFs, it just continues to flow into these stocks, which continues to push them higher. And now you've got this big flashing neon sign of S&P 5000 hanging out there. That's just getting everybody all excited. So it's like, oh, we're going to go to 5000. So I got to get in. And then every time they get in and buy more, you know, SPY or whatever it is they're buying, whatever index they're chasing, that's just fueling these stocks because all that money just flows into these same stocks and keeps pushing them higher. And, of course, there's a lot of, you know, speculation around GLP-1 for Eli Lilly or for NVIDIA on AI side. And, and so every time there's a news headline about this or that, you know, these stocks go up because people just keep piling into them an expectation that, you know, they're going to grow to the moon. But, you know, this is this is kind of where we are. So we just have to understand that. And that's what the that's the market environment that we live in. And 
again, when you have this nice, big, flashing kind of psychological neon sign sitting out there, the markets just want to kind of gravitate to that. And, and so, you know, and this is a chart that I showed um, at our economic summit uh, a couple of Saturdays ago. If you're investing in the markets in anything other than the S&P or the NASDAQ, you've underperformed. And that includes, you know, gold, worst performer. Uh, this is going back to 2014. Gold's the worst performer, emerging markets, bonds, international, real estate, oil, Russell 2000, small cap, mid cap, have all vastly underperformed the S&P 500. NASDAQ has <laughs> just the NASDAQ since 2014 has just had an astronomical outperformance. And this is, again, this is that passive indexing kind of mindless robot that continues just to hoover up money that's coming into the markets because it just goes into these same you know handful of stocks. But the same thing, and you see the same thing, though, when you look at the sectors of the S&P 500 versus the S&P index itself. Outside of technology, everything else has underperformed the S&P since uh, 2020. So, again, it's just been the same chase over and over again. But that's but given that technology makes up such a large percentage weight of the index, and those are the stocks that are getting chased, the index is getting pulled up to that 5,000 mark. The question, of course, is obviously is what happens if we stop chasing those stocks for one reason or the other. And we'll talk about we'll talk about that risk on the other side of the break. daily investment news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com nothing sinks a marriage quicker than money issues this valentine's day promise you'll respect your lover's credit communicate about your money and share together our first candid coffee for 2024. Five Money Habits of Unhappy Couples. Saturday, February 24th. Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff will have money tips to help revive your financial harmony. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. Five Money Habits of Unhappy Couples. Candid coffee with Ratliff and Rosso. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Welcome back to the show this morning. So Eli Lilly um, out this morning with earnings and uh, absolutely crushing it um, on estimates and revenue stocks up about uh, 3.5% this morning on top of being up 6% yesterday. Um, we added that position to our portfolio a little while back and it's you know just continues to migrate higher. But this is the point of what I'm making is – so as portfolio managers, we have to generate money for our clients. It would be nice. You know, it's, you know, you hear a lot of talk about people's like, well, I'm a long-term investor and, you know, I'm looking, you know, I, I like to buy fundamentals and, 
you know, I believe in the long-term, you know, outlook for stuff and it all sounds fine and dandy, right, in reality. And, and, and people say that to themselves all the time. You know, we, as humans, we lie to ourselves constantly. And this is one of the big lies that we, that we tell ourselves is that, oh, we're a long-term investor and we don't care about, you know, what's happening right now. I'm buying the fundamentals and, you know, whatever it is. Right? We lie to ourselves about that. But in the reality, you know, we're watching CNBC every day. We're watching every take of the market. And we measure our portfolio performance from January to December. And that's how we gauge how well things are going. Um, and so as a portfolio manager, we have to invest in the things that are making money. And we have to balance that risk in the portfolio and manage that risk accordingly. So even though these stocks are trading at astronomical price-to-sales ratios on valuation basis. Makes no sense. NVIDIA's at 30 times earnings, right? We have to own that. We, we own AMD. We own Microsoft. We own Apple. We own Google. Um, because we have to. Um, you know, we just launched a dividend equity model on Simpl Simplevisor, and that model is got basically runs twice the yield of the S&P 500, but 30% of it's invested in... Five stocks. And you can pretty much guess which ones they are. It's, right. it's Apple, it's Meta, Google, Amazon, Microsoft. And the reason we have 30% invested in, I'm sorry, six stocks altogether. So we have 30% invested in six stocks because that's what will give you relative market performance in theory when markets are going up. But you'll get you'll get S&P type performance. Now, you're, gonna get, you're not going to get exactly S&P performance because you don't own 100% of six stocks. But you're going to get performance as the markets are rising and as those stocks are rising because that's what's going to drive the mothership. And then you get the dividend yield that's twice that of the S&P. That's the theory of, of how this model should work. Now, we just launched it, so it's in beta stage right now. But, you know, we're, we're monitoring this to see if it works. But the, the question that you have to ask yourself is that when does this change or what causes it to change? And see, that's, where, that's the problematic question, right? How long can these stocks just continue to drive the whole entire market? You know, when is the rest of the market going to catch up? Well, th there's a couple of problems with this. And you've got to come into a situation that changes the thought process of investors in order to stop this from occurring. So if you take a look at earnings as an expect, uh, uh, you know, uh, right now, Earnings expectation for the rest of this year, the only part of the S&P that's growing earnings on EPS is Magnificent 7. The rest of the index has declining earnings. And that's, that's, that's the outlook for the entire year. So the reason that people are chasing these stocks right now is because they're the only ones that are really growing earnings and profit margins. And I've got an article coming out here soon on, on inflation and, and profits. But this is why people are chasing these stocks because these are the ones reporting earnings that are actually growing earnings. The rest of these companies are struggling to beat lowered estimates. So what changes this dynamic, right? So what gets everybody to start selling NVIDIA and Microsoft and buying everything else? Well, these companies have to stop growing earnings and start disappointing. That's part of it. But the other part of it is, is that you have to get all these people that are now investing in passive ETFs to stop investing in passive ETFs and actually start selling them. 
So what's going to cause that, right? I've got to get people to stop buying ETFs and start selling ETFs, which would require 35 cents of every dollar to be sold out of those big 10 stocks. And this is the problem with passive, is that passive investing ignores the fundamentals. It's just basically people buying stuff because they expect it to go up over time. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong or, or whatever, but again, we're not in a market that is being driven by fundamentals. And we just have to understand that. We, you know, it's, we can't sit down at the table to play poker and try to use the rules of monopoly. I mean, it just doesn't work, right? You know, you've got to play by the rules that you have. And you got to play with the market that you have. And, and this market right now doesn't make any sense on a lot of fronts. The valuations that we're paying for companies, these companies will never be able to meet them. And eventually, at some point, that failure to meet those earnings, that earnings growth rate, will occur. But it can go along for a lot longer than you, than you think. And, and again, without some type of exogenous force, and this is why we always talk about you know what what would create you know a big sell off in the market you know that and we're talking about that 20 30 40% decline that that everybody's trying to avoid right that that loss avoidance that we have well so the only way to uh, to create that is you've got to have some type of exogenous event that nobody's anticipating that that automatically changes everybody's view on the world something happens and all of a sudden Everybody's got to question the valuation that they're paying for stuff. This change, whatever it is, is going to reduce economic growth and, and earnings by 20% over the next two years. And then the market's got to reprice for that. And that's what, that's what happened in the financial crisis. Nobody knew what the world was going to look like after the Lehman bankruptcy. So that's why the market's repriced so heavily. The dot-com crash occurred because everybody came to realize that all the promise of earnings growth and profits wasn't going to be there. And at some point, that's what's going to happen with this market. Now, when that happens, though, it could be years. It could be next month, right? We just, just don't know when it's going to occur. But something's got to happen that makes everybody rethink the valuations that they're paying on things. And right now, there just doesn't seem to be anything to, to stop that at the moment. And again, as we're talking about, now there's this big psychological round number of 5,000 that's sitting out there that markets just kind of want to naturally kind of gravitate to. It's a nice big, it's a nice big round number. And so markets just, you know, traders just want to try to get it there. It's like, can, can we do it? Yeah, we can do this, right? Buy stuff. And so we'll get there, and we'll get there probably pretty soon. And again, it could be today, right? We're not that far away. So again, you know, the market rallying, you know, 1% or 2%, and then, you know, at a day, we, we do that all the time. And a 1% rally would produce right at 5,000. And of course, you know, what happens that after that will be, you know, kind of the big question. Um, but that's, you know, again, this is just, you know, this is this is kind of where we are. But and this is the problem with a lot of these big tech stocks is that they are priced for perfection. 
there is no room for error with a lot of these companies. And, you know, Apple was having, as I was talking about earlier, was having trouble growing revenues for a long time. Maybe everybody's going to go buy a $3,500 pair of Apple Vision Pros and go sit on their couch and, you know, stop communicating with everybody. I guess I don't know how this works, but, you know, maybe everybody just starts sitting around their house with goggles on. And maybe this is the new thing. And maybe we start, maybe we move into an episode of the Black Mirror and we're all walking around, you know, Houston and everybody's wearing Apple Vision Pro goggles, you know, attached to their phone. Maybe this is the new world we're moving into. Maybe, right? Maybe this is the new driver for Apple. But, you know, Apple's been having trouble growing revenue for a while. So maybe this is the thing that finally gets there. But, you know, you take a look at, you know, Meta, Eli Lilly, uh, Microsoft. I mean, these companies are growing. Re Amazon, you know, they're growing revenue. A lot of it's based on small segments of their business like the cloud. But there's a limit to that revenue. I mean, yeah, I mean, in, in an early state, you know, I, I can grow a dollar to $2, have a 100% growth rate. But when you're starting getting into the billions, it's, get, it, it, it's a much more challenging action to try to grow revenue at 20% a year indefinitely. And this is why price to sales matter so much. Once you start getting to these very, very large numbers of revenue, it's very hard to continue to grow at a sustainable rate. And that's just assuming that nothing changes in the future and all of a sudden you don't have another competitor with a bigger, badder product that everybody just moves over to. And this is the problem with a lot of technology is there's no moat, right? I mean, anybody, if you've got enough money, you can go build a cloud service. And if you build one better than what Microsoft's got, you're going to get business. I don't know what changes that, right? We just have a market that's priced for perfection Something will eventually happen, but I have no idea when or what will cause it. That's why it's so difficult to manage risk in the markets that we have today. But anyway, all right, wraps up the show. That article's on the website. All the attendant charts and graphs are there for you. Realinvestmentadvice.com. Um, tomorrow, we'll pick up with Danny Ratliff. Be sure to go by the website, um, get our latest blog post. Our uh, uh, daily market commentary is out already this morning. You get that off the website as long as, as well as get subscribed to the newsletter. It's all free. It's all there at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. See you back here tomorrow.